Well, good evening, everyone. Let's um, start by setting our motivation. So I had a different motivation planned about four minutes ago, and I'm going to change it now. Um, About three minutes ago, a standing lamp to my right-hand side toppled over and um, smacked Danny on the head. Unfortunately, Venerable Chini was there to break the blow, but nevertheless, uh, we've been trying to bring some comfort to Danny. So this is just another example of how karma ripens and comes out of the blue and we get smacked on the head and we don't see it coming. Unfortunately, there's a number of us here to um, help out. So I think this is very um, kind of Danny to allow us to have this experience to see. (laughs) Maybe not kind, but (laughs) brave. Uh, That we simply don't know what's coming. And we don't really expect accidents to happen. And they'll happen. And now some karma that was building up in Danny's mind stream has ripened. And we can rejoice for the next 60 minutes that her life will continue. And we can also rejoice that we have this opportunity to really focus on the teachings of the Buddha tonight, specifically on bodhicitta, and to refresh in all of our minds this wonderful teaching, and that we actually have met authentic spiritual teachers, many of them, who are talking about bodhicitta day and night and are showing us how to do it by example and by what they teach. So good evening everyone. This is not how we wanted the Thursday night teaching to start, but here we are, and we're still alive. Uh, This is week six of the Lamb Room teachings. Last week, Venerable Jingmei gave a wonderful teaching on the disadvantages of cyclic existence, and it really got us all thinking about suffering. And tonight I'll be talking about bodhicitta, and specifically the seven-point cause and effect teaching. So the resources that I use to prepare for the talk include teachings by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Venerable Tuchin Children, Lama Yeshe, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, Venerable Riba Rinpoche, Geshe Sopa, and the three-volume Lamrim Chenmo set by the Lamrim Translation Committee. I'm not sure what that's called. By Lama Songkapa. There's a, a wealth of material here. I'm not sure I'll get through it. Um, but I'll try and hit the high points tonight. So I know that, uh, for me, I think the word bodhicitta, we use it so much through the day that I came to see in preparing for this talk that it's sort of gone into vague and that I had this idea of what I thought it was and I realize I've sort of gotten a little bit sloppy. So if we look at just the word itself, bodhicitta, bodhi means 
awakened mind, enlightened. Uh, just awakened or enlightened, and mind is the cheetah part. Um, in looking at um, Geshe Jampa Tegeshjog's book, Transforming Adversity into Joy and Courage, he really makes a point of divine, defining bodhicitta. And what he says about it is that um, it's an altruistic intention or the awakened mind. And it's a primary consciousness that has two aspirations. The aspiration intent on benefiting all sentient beings and the aspiration intent on full awakening. So then he says, first we aspire to benefit others. And as we do this, as we think about it, we meditate on it, we go about our day trying to benefit others, we come to see in our experience that as much as we want to do this, to benefit others, that we just don't have the capacity to do it. You know, sometimes we help people and sometimes we bring harm. So it's this dilemma. And so then as we continue hearing the teachings, we learn that the only person who can really truly benefit others is a Buddha. And if we attain Buddhahood, then we'll have all of these endless virtuous qualities of body, speech, and mind, and we'll have the wisdom and compassion to know exactly what to do in any situation, like when a lamp pitches over and smacks someone in the head, or someone is in an afflicted mental state. We'll know for every single being what to do in that moment. Then he says, once we realize this, that we have to become a fully awakened being, then we generate this heartfelt wish, I definitely must attain full awakening. The primary consciousness that comes together with that aspiration is bodhicitta. So I think sometimes in the past I've sort of thought that, you know, having a kind heart is bodhicitta, but he says, clearly, no, it's not. And then he also says the aspiration to benefit others is not bodhicitta. He goes on to say that the aspiration to become a Buddha is not bodhicitta. The aspiration to benefit all sentient beings is a cause of bodhicitta. It occurs prior to and not at the same time. However, when based on that aspiration to benefit others, we generate the primary consciousness with the aspiration to become a Buddha, then we've generated full-fledged bodhicitta. So he says it's really important to know exactly what bodhicitta is, because if we don't, we won't be able to bring about the great benefits that come from it, and we won't even be able to generate it. Um, I found somewhere Lama Yeshe on YouTube talking about bodhicitta, and he gives a very beautiful short talk. And in the talk, he's talking about the fact that bodhicitta is the complete opposite of the self-cherishing attitude that we struggle with day in and day out. And he says it's giving oneself completely in service to others. And then in the, in the same talk, he was making reference to someone putting all his energy into jumping over things with a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And then he says, you know, so what? In the end, you know, someone does that for years and years, practices hard and hard with the motorcycle. In the end, you know, they die. So what? So I was thinking about the time frame when Lama Yeshe would have been talking about this. And guess who he's talking about? Evil Knievel! Do you remember? Do you know about Evil Knievel? So I just thought for fun I'd Google him. Do you know about Evil Knievel, Danny? Okay. In the 70s, Evil, Evil Knievel hit his height. He was this wild man who was jumping over everything with his motorbike. 
And um, at one point, he persuaded the owners of Caesar Palace, is that in Los Angeles, uh, Las, Las Vegas, Vegas. Um, to let them jump over their fountains on New Year's Eve. And um, actually, let's see. He tried to do this jump, and he failed. And then he was in a coma for 29 days. But it didn't stop there. This is how, you know, I mean, I'm giving an extreme example right now, but we all have examples of this in our life, of where we've just put everything into something that is totally not in the service of others. So then he gets better, and he starts lobbying the government of California to let him jump over the Grand Canyon. And they didn't let him do it, thankfully. So then he settled on trying to jump over Snake River in Twin Falls, Idaho, and um, that didn't work. He had some sort of parachute system set up on his motorbike, and the parachute didn't work, and then he crashed again. And then um, there was another instance where um, he went to Britain, and he tried to jump over 13 buses, and he crashed. And then finally, his like most magnificent moment um, came in 1975, and this is, I'm sure, the one that Lama Yeshe is talking about. And he managed to jump over 14 buses. I'm not sure where. Oh, in Ohio. And this is like, this was it. And then he continued jumping from there and crashing. You know, So this enormous effort, and all the money that he made, and all the money that he lost. I guess in his biography he said he made $60 million in his career, jumping and crashing, but he spent $62 million because then there was a lawsuit with a book. Anyway, you get the picture. Um, so, let's not do <laughs> evil can evil. <laughs> let's do bodhicitta. Um, then I took a look at what His Holiness had to say about bodhicitta, and he speaks about it in a beautiful phrase that I don't hear people say so often. He talks about it being the spirit of enlightenment. And um, this is, um, then he refers to Sankapa, who says it's a mental state in which Motivated by an aspiration to bring about the welfare of others, one aspires to Buddhahood. And then Tsongkhapa continues to say, repeating what Geshe Tekchok says, that when a practitioner cultivating the spirit of enlightenment reaches an uncontrived single-pointed aspiration to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings, this individual has attained the aspirational spirit of enlightenment. When a practitioner further cultivates a commitment to putting this aspiration into practice and commits to engaging in bodhisattva practices and takes the bodhisattva vows, then from that point on, his or her spirit of enlightenment is an engaged spirit of enlightenment. So then the big question that comes up daily in my mind is, so okay, so how do we generate this capacity to hold others dear with this sense of affection? Not just the ones we're easily feeling this for, but for all beings. So we have two practices that we've been taught. And the one I'll talk about tonight is the seven point cause and effect, and this comes from the lineage of Maitreya. And it's a practice which was used by such great Indian pandits such as Chandra Kirti, Chandra Groman, Shantarakshika. And while um, the other um, practice which Venerable Chini will talk about next week, exchanging and equalizing self and others comes from Nagarjuna. So the seven point cause and effect is the key to cultivate a sense of other living beings as being related to you as our mother in another lifetime. And this practice begins with the cultivation of all sentient beings as having been one's mother and then bringing to mind the kindness of that relationship 
And His Holiness the Dalai Lama points out that this approach still involves relating to other beings on the basis of their attitude or behavior towards us. And that's something to sort of keep in mind. So um, then at some point, whenever you're doing reading about Bodhicitta, we're going to always read about the great Atisha, who so showed such extraordinary interest in Bodhicitta. And in reading about um, Atisha, I found a fascinating short summary of his life story, which I thought I'd share with you because um, I've always known about the big journey that he went on, the 13-month journey, but I didn't know um, this information about his earlier life, so I thought you might find this interesting too. So he was born in the year 1982 AD in East Bengal. He was born into a royal family and was given the name Chandragarbha, which means moon essence. He was later given the name Atisha, meaning peace, by the Tibetan king Jangchub O. And it is said that at the time of his birth there were many auspicious signs, and from his very early childhood, Prince Chandragarbha displayed an unusually peaceful and compassionate nature and an aspiration to spiritual practice. The young prince also had a special connection to Tara, the female Buddha, embodying all the Buddha's activities of great compassion. At the time when Atisha's parents were planning to arrange marriage for him, Tara manifested to Atisha and counseled him not to be attached to his kingdom or worldly life in general. She advised the prince that he had a strong karmic, karmic potential to become a great spiritual teacher as a result of meditation and practice in previous lives. So, inspired by Tara's words, Atisha formed the firm determination to practice the Dharma and to attain enlightenment. So, the prince's first step on the path to enlightenment was to find a spiritual teacher who would instruct him in meditation and Buddhist teachings. And he sought out a number of renowned Indian masters of his day, such as the great teacher Jatari, who first gave him teachings on taking refuge and on Bodhicitta. Bodhidabra, who lived at the great monastery of Nalanda. No, there's another name here. I can't manage it. I'll try. Vidya Kolakila, known to have attained the perfect realization of the wisdom perceiving emptiness. Rahala Gupta, known as the Black Mountain Yogi. And Avadupita, the great Vajrayana master. So these all became his teachers. And then at the age of 29, which is interesting, the same age as Chakimuni Buddha, Atisha experienced a vision in which Rahal, Rahagupta appeared to him. The Black Mountain Yogi told him that it would be most beneficial for his practice and for the Dharma if he were to take ordination as a monk. Atisha had several more dreams in which his teachers and deities appeared and gave him similar advice. So following this direction, Atisha received ordination from the great master Silakashrita and was given the name Dipamkara Sajana. Sorry for the poor pronunciation. So, studying under the renowned teacher Dharma Kashita, Atisha deepened his realizations of wisdom and compassion and was known for his pure ethical behavior. Still, he yearned to find the method that would bring him quickly and directly to enlightenment. And so, he made the pilgrimage to Bodh Gaya. And while circumambulating Bodh Gaya's great stupa, Atisha experienced a clear vision in which two manifestations of Tara appeared in the space before him. One asked the other, what is the most important practice for achieving enlightenment? The other replied, the practice of bodhicitta, supported by loving kindness and great compassion. This is most important. 
Thus, Atisha formed the single-minded aspiration to protect his understanding and practice the mind of enlightenment, or bodhicitta. So, after checking thoroughly with a number of scholars and yogis, Atisha learned that a high master called, oh boy, here's another one, <laughs> Suvarna Dipa Vipa, later known as Serlingpa, was reputed to have the most vast and profound realizations of bodhicitta. And this person lived on the distant island of Sumatra in present-day Indonesia. So now we get to the part that we are all familiar with. Atisha made the journey to Sumatra by boat with a group of traders. The voyage took more than 13 months, and many difficulties arose along the way. Having reached the end of his long journey, Atisha first carefully investigated Suvanar Dipa's or Sir Lingpa's qualities by closely questioning his friends and students. And then he went on to approach Sir Lingpa to receive the teachings. So then we uh, continue to remember what our teachers have told, that um, he completed the experiential instruction on both the seven-point technique and exchanging himself with others from the master Sir Lingpa. So, 12 years of study, studying just these two methods of bodhicitta. Now, he would, in time, he would only teach the seven-point technique in public to large assemblies of disciples, and he would teach instructions on exchanging oneself and others secretly to select groups of individuals. When Atisha went to Tibet, he gave the instructions on exchanging himself, exchanging oneself with others, only to his principal student, John Topa. So later on we learn that uh, Lama Sankapa incorporated these two sets of instructions into a single practice consisting of 11 points. So when you are receiving teachings on bodhicitta, you receive the two sets of instructions separately. But when we are actually meditating on bodhicitta, training our mind, then we combine both instructions and meditate on the 11 points. Combining the two instructions into a single practice for the purpose of training the mind in meditation is said to be a particular greatness of the Gulupka tradition. And if you'd like to find those 11 points, you can find them in Geshe Jampatekchok's book, Transforming Adversity into Courage and Joy, on pages 202 and 203. So more background before we launch into the seven-point instruction. One of the great gurus of Lama Atisha told him that an attainment such as clairvoyance or a vision of a deity or concentration as stable as a mountain is nothing compared to bodhicitta. So for those, for those of us hearing this, this might seem amazing because if we ourselves or someone we knew had a vision of a deity or achieved clairvoyance or through practicing meditation attained concentration as stable as a mountain, we would really think this is really incredible and we'd be rejoicing. However, Atisha's guru said to him, these are nothing compared to bodhicitta. Therefore, practice bodhicitta. So before proceeding uh, with the seven cause and effect instructions, um, we need to cultivate equanimity, which is a mind free from attachment to dear ones, aversion towards difficult people, and apathy towards neutral people. And Geshe Sopo, in talking about this, says, Mahayana practitioners engage in analytical meditation to come to see that there is no reason to divide sentient beings into unequal categories. If we don't do this kind of meditation, then we'll just continue to be attached to some, have aversion for others, and feel complete apathy for everyone else. 
So in some, our compassion will be discriminatory, and this will block our efforts to develop the great universal compassion that is the essential Mahayana attitude. So Geshe Sopa says we have to have, we have to find a mental bulldozer to level the mental ground. And this is what he says equanimity can do. And so talking about mental bulldozers and bulldozers bringing um, ground to evenness, right now we've been through all of that with Chenrezig Hall being built. And so we can all clearly see that a foundation that isn't even just results in catastrophe for the builders. And so we have to do this with our mind too. We have to make it an even playing field. So, Geshe Sopa points out that an effective way to develop equanimity is to look at the way we categorize people and the reasons that we come up with for why we put them in a particular category. And when we start really examining our reasons, we begin to see that our reasons are actually not founded on reality. So, I came up with a little board game for Christmas that you can do, and I thought, this might be a good thing to do right now. It's very cheap. You just need a few things to start this game. And actually, the most important part of the game is to really pay attention to the reasons that we say for why we put people in the categories we put them. So we're going to leave this person in the neutral category. We're not going to give that person a name yet. But we're going to call this person Joan. And we're going to call this person Fred. Okay, so this is how the game works. Right now, I'd like someone to give me a reason why Joan is in the friend category. Any reason. She likes me. Yep, good enough. Joan likes you. So, you have to put a mark on. Green is for friends, red is for enemy or difficult people. Okay, so why is Fred in the stranger category? He always points out my faults. Yeah. Sorry? I said difficult. Yeah, points out my faults. Okay, so what could Joan do to move over here to the difficult category? Okay. And what could Fred do to move into the friend category? Apologize. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and over here is a neutral person. So how could a neutral person, so that someone in Safeway, that you see maybe once a month, how does this person move into the other category? And you can Smile choose the category. Smile at you. Smile at you, okay. So, Joan's in a difficult category. What could happen over time that Joan would end up over here in the neutral category? Move to Texas. Move to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's no contact. And then after a while, maybe it's 20 years, you can't even remember what Joan looks like. And if you saw her, you wouldn't recognize her. You might have even forgotten Joan's name. Gone. Okay. Fred's going to go back to a difficult... Category. How okay. come? He got sick for a month. He got sick for a month? <laughs> Whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> He's not doing his chores. He's sick all the time. <laughs> okay. Time for who's this? Yeah. 
<laughs> oh. Somebody unknown. Well, let's give them a name. Max. Max. Okay. So, Max is now going to move over to the friend category. How come? Okay, David present. So we're doing easy examples right now. If we were really going to up the ante, we could be really honest. <laughs> the thing to do is maybe to write down what we do to people all day long, because all day long we're moving people around in our head. You know, and maybe here we should put felt pen marks on people so we can see who we've done. <laughs> to what? Yeah, stickies. Um, but the point of this little game is just to see that, you know, all of these movements are based on what? My How they treat me. me. Yeah, you. <laughs> and that if we really look at the reasons, if we write down the reasons, I'm going to start doing this actually, write down the reasons why I move someone around in one day and then look at it and just say, you know, is this reality? And it's not. Anyway, a simple Christmas game that we might want to do with the family. <laughs> so, if we look at these reasons also, uh, we exaggerate apparent goodness or badness. And based on these faulty perceptions, we see people as disagreeable or agreeable. We take sides, we have strong feelings of hatred or attachment. It just is really a mess. And so, you know, as we engage in this kind of thinking, we are the furthest thing from wanting to do what Lama Yeshe says and be of service to others and hold people as dear and lovable. So, Kamala Tina also gives us some things to think about in trying to level the playing ground. And he says there's two things that we should always think about. So, the first one is, sentient beings from their side equally want happiness. No one wants problems. No one wants disagreements or suffering. And so there's no difference. They're all equal from their side. And there's no reason for us to cherish some more than others. It's just crazy. Or to feel aversion. Or to just feel total apathy. And then the second reason, he says, is that from our side, from beginningless time, we've been born in samsara. Every type of life, in all six realms. And there's not one single being that hasn't been our mother, our father, our friend, our enemy, stranger. We've had various relationships with all beings. All beings have been dear friends, our cherished ones. All beings have been challenging. And it no longer makes sense to be attached to some and feel aversion for others. Now that makes total sense. Everyone gets this. Why is it so hard to do? So Lama Zopa goes on with this. We have to keep, you know, to sort of convince ourselves and to get the mind, you know, softer and letting go of this, we have to keep bringing these reasons to our mind. And Lama Zopa says, the three objects, friend, enemy, and stranger, are not definitely true. The reasons for their being what they are are very temporal. The enemy of last year may, the, may be the friend of this year. The friend of this morning may become this afternoon's enemy. It can change within the hour or the minute, and it does so because of attachment to, get this, food, clothing, and reputation. Isn't that amazing? Food, clothing, and reputation. So when we again review how we continually shuffle people from one category to the next, 
then it's really good, Lama Zopa says, and all of our teachers, to consider the stories from different scriptures that show the changing karmic relationships so that we can really shake the notion that enemies are always enemies and friends are always friends. And so, because I can never bring this story to mind exactly, I'm going to read it. And this is a story that we all know, but it's, it's, it jolts me every time I read it. Can you do it, can you do it without glasses? Probably not. Okay, once there was a couple living with a man's, with the man's elderly parents. When the old father passed away, he was reborn as a fish in a pond behind the house. When the old mother died, she was reborn as a dog that became the family pet. When the family's enemy died, he was born as the couple's child. Neither the husband nor wife knew about these rebirths. They felt so much love and lavished so much care on their baby, their previous enemy. They caught the fish that had been the man's beloved father, cooked and enjoyed eating him. The dog who had been the man's mother begged for some of the fish, her former husband. The couple got angry and beat the dog, but finally they gave her the bones to eat. So, you know, in one way this is kind of funny, and in another way it's just profoundly tragic. And this is our, I mean, it'll be interesting, eventually we'll know how we're all connected. <laughs> That's a ways off. So, um... And Venerable Children also says that, um, you know, these relationships that we have, they're just not fixed, they continually change. And if we're able to free ourselves from this attachment, aversion, and apathy, then we automatically avoid something that most worldly people consume a whole lot of time in, which is helping our friends, harming our enemies. And she points out very clearly that this is what animals do. And surely we can rise above that. So now we're going to start in with the first of the seven points, which is recognizing that everyone has been our mother. And this is a very difficult point, because understanding this point means having some feeling for rebirth and for multiple lives. And uh, in reading Geshe Sopa's commentary, he taught university students for 30 years and other people, and he says that Westerners have really big difficulty with this. Um, and even some of his students went on to say that, you know, that these ideas are stupid. And that people following this, they're foolish. And he points out that we should not simply accept things, you know, as true, which would be really wrong, but to just really um, to start looking critically at these teachings and to try them out and not close our heart and say, forget it, this is ridiculous. And he also makes the point that, you know, people who are born into a culture that accepts reincarnation and karma just don't question it as much. It's just... You know, there, it's in there, almost in their DNA. So this whole idea of rebirth and the fact that we aren't just who we are in this life, we aren't just this body, we try to get a feeling for this, that our body and mind are two separate things. And so the way to do that is to look at the fact that the body has causes, and the consciousness has causes. So the causes for the body, well, we can trace back to the sperm and the egg of our parents, and then of our grandparents and our great-grandparents. And then when we look at the cause of any moment of mind, we can say it's the previous moment. And we can trace that back to the time that we were an infant, and to the time that we were in the womb, and to the time of conception. And then where does the mind stream come from at the time of conception? Nothing starts without causes, so it had to be a previous moment in time. And so we say that the cause of the mind at the time of conception is the previous life, the mind stream in the previous life. And so we get a feeling for that, that we aren't just this body. 
And since there is no beginning to psychic existence, there is no beginning to life and death. So we're born, we age, we get sick and we die. And each time we're born from a womb, we have a mother and a father. And it follows over countless lifetimes that we've had countless numbers of parents. So Nagarjuna says this very famous quote that if we took all the matter on earth and made tiny balls the size of juniper seeds, there would, be, there would not be as many balls as the number of times a sentient being has been our mother. And the point of this is that we have to be convinced that all sentient beings have been our mother, not once, but countless numbers of times. And they will be our mother countless numbers of times in the future. So then the other logical reason to contemplate is that all, of all the realms of samsara, there are none which we've never been born. We've been born in every single place innumerable times. Then Lama Zopa gives another reason. The time when sentient beings began to be mothers does not exist. Such a time is not the object of even the omniscient mind of enlightened beings. So then we have to just concentrate on all beings as our mother because it makes the rest of the steps towards developing affectionate love much easier. So the next step is remembering the kindness of our mothers. Kadampa Geshe Potawa said that we should first meditate on the kindness of our present mother because if we start there, it's easy to bring to mind the kindness of other sentient beings. So what I've noticed in this now is that there's a certain order that we have to do the meditations with certain things, and they're not always the same. So here we have to start with our present mother. Now, having said that, as we know, there are many people who have been raised in situations which were very difficult. And so people have been abandoned, people were abused. There are all kinds of things that you know, make recalling the kindness of the mother a tremendous challenge. So... Over time, Venerable Children has suggested that, you know, we really, that people who have this situation really reflect on what was going on for our mother or father and what were the causes leading them to behave in the way they behaved and to come to see that, you know, they were just simply under the control of afflictions and karma, absolutely doing the best they could. And... Um, she says that the bottom line is that eventually, and this will take some time, when we've gotten through that and made some peace with that, we still have to return to thinking of the kindness of our mother of this life. Because in fact, this person is the basis of our precious human life. And um, the fact that we're still alive is evidence of her kindness. And Lama Zopa Rinpoche also stresses that we need to remember that if our mother had not cared for us when we were in the womb, we wouldn't have been born alive. And if she hadn't fed us well afterwards, we wouldn't have enjoyed the various functions of our human body that is the instrument in you know, allowing us to engage in virtuous activities. So at this point, I, um, I'm going to invite some members of the community to share things they remember about the kindness of their mother in this life. Because we know we're familiar with these teachings, but I thought it would be good to just to get a refresher and to maybe get a different point of view, and maybe it will trigger something in our own experience that will help us um, just get even warmer in our feelings about our mother. So I'm going to invite um, Zopa to start with a short story, and then Danny, if she can. 
Uh, well, when Venerable um, Sumpton asked me to do this, I started thinking of um, my mother. And um, really, it's so interesting how working with this uh, meditation changes your mind. Because when I first came to the Dharma about um, 18 years ago, and I heard this instruction, it was like, well, I'm going to have to choose something else than my mother. <laughs> I'm going to have to choose a different person. I'm going to have to choose somebody that I feel um, kindness towards because I was in the throes of a lot of therapy around um, digging my way out of um, my alcoholic family abuse, abandonment, some really pretty extreme circumstances. And uh, the amazing thing is as, as you go in and mine this, and as I've gone in and dug and mined it, now I, there's kind of no end to the kindnesses that I see that were always there. Um, my mother was, um, grew up very poor, very poor dirt floors in a, a small, uh, kind of a hovel of a cabin in north central Montana. Um, her parents were immigrants, um, working very hard, but she always, always made a really nice home, no matter how humble it was, clean, really pretty, full of warmth and good food. And uh, one of the main things she taught me, um, because we had so many people come live with us, and I thought that was just what everyone did, but it wasn't. It was what my mother and father did. They opened their house to whoever. So our grandparents lived with us when they were on hard times. Our, my dad's brother and wife and three kids lived with us for a long time. Um, my mother's sister. So it was just like anybody who had a difficult time came to our house. And it was never considered any kind of burden at all. It was like, just this is how it is. It's wonderful they're here. And we just all do these things together. But the one thing I really wanted to tell is um, my mother and father didn't have much money and they worked really, really hard. And now I'm just astonished at this, that they sent all four of us kids to Catholic school and they had to pay tuition. And I still don't know to this day how they came up with this tuition. But they wanted us to have a spiritual basis and um, I know that that's a part of what led me to the Dharma. So this tremendous sacrifice they had to make, they had to work extra, they had to do, my mother took care of other kids to make extra money so that all four of us could go to Catholic school and get the best education in the town and get a spiritual uh, grounding. So they did that for all of us till the, the 12th grade, ninth grade for me because then we moved back. That was amazing, and it just has given me so much, so I'm incredibly grateful. And that has changed from doing this meditation. Thank, Thank you. Super. Thank you. Um, I was uh, thinking about my mother actually in this meditation for the lamp fall down. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I... I was also thinking about, yeah, okay, she gave me birth, but um, I had uh, a lot of difficulties too, so I grew up mostly in an orphanage. Um, so I could be quite angry to her, but um, actually uh, I'm happy that I'm, for example, here now and I can study and practice the Dharma and uh, develop my mind. 
And uh, also, I was thinking shortly before that I fall down, um, that being born here, um, so my mother's womb, um, gave me the opportunity to um, to learn what kind of difficulties people have. My mother was a she was very um, addicted to drugs and alcohol. She couldn't control her mind. She was totally addicted to. Um, dependent on others, she didn't know how to lead her life. And actually, um, if my mother would be quite wonderful, lovable, I would, um, okay, see that one. But now I realize, hey, um, people suffer a lot. And um, because of a great deal, also because of their upbringing, and of course karma and so on, but a great deal really how we relate to each other, how we um, deal with small kids who relate, uh, who need parents so deeply. So that uh, I, I, I appreciate that my mother gave me birth so that I could see this, um, how we grow up, how we depend on each other, how we influence each other, and how people function, why they suffer. Yeah, mm. suffering, see the suffering. Mm. Thank you, Daniel. So since it's Thanksgiving weekend and people might be getting together with family and friends, I think this would be a great topic to spend the weekend, remembering the kindness of our mother. And um, fortunately, in this life, I have a fantastic mother, and it's very easy for me to think of all the things she did for my brother and sister and I, and how she worried and how all of her parents worried about us nonstop. I mean... We were the focal point. I I know that uh, you know even still, uh, my brother and sister are my mom's biggest concern, and this is what mothers you know this is how mothers operate. And um, I remember one time when I was really sick, I had some kind of thing happen where I was paralyzed and I couldn't walk, and um, it was very temporary. But then I went for tests and apparently they were testing me to see if I had leukemia. And I will never forget the look on my mother's face when we went to the doctor and you know, I had to t- take blood and I was screaming. But the look on her face was just, I think I was four at the time. I will never forget it, you know. And um, so just, you know, if you, if, you, if you have had children in this life, you've got a big step up in this meditation because you're going through what your mother went through and you're just getting first-hand experience. And for those of us who haven't had children in this lifetime, I think we have to really observe and reflect and talk to people and get the stories from other people about what their mothers have done because it's extraordinary what our parents had to do. And it's kind of lost in, you know, the ozone after a while because we're sort of, sort of, we're just sort of spinning around in our self-cherishing mind. But um, this aspect of the meditation is just so... Um, it can just really, really change your mind about your own mother. And So thank you, Danny, for sharing that. Even people who have had a tough one, you know, a tough experience, I think it can really heal um, the experience. Um, Geshe Sopa says that um, if we recognize that all sentient beings have been our kind mother, we will find them so dear 
that we want to help them and give them happiness. And this kind of spontaneous loving attitude will make all of our actions virtuous. So I'm going to read another section right now. That is, um, it just, this really touched my heart. Because sentient beings change from life to life, we do not recognize them. Once your mother is reborn into a new life, her form changes to something else, but she's still your mother. If she has been reborn with the ugly little body of an insect, ignorance causes you to look upon her as having no relationship to yourself. We forget that all our dear relatives are in the same type of suffering situation. It is simply a lack of knowledge that causes us to hate others and have no pity for their misery. It is simply a lack of knowledge that causes us to hate others and have no pity for their misery. I mean, wow. But now we have received teachings and have the intelligence to understand the situation properly. We also have the best opportunity to do something for them. So what could be more shameful than to claim to be a Mahayana practitioner, but only try to free yourself from suffering. There is nothing in the world more dishonorable than a bodhisattva who works only for his or her own happiness and liberation. A Mahayana practitioner should think, these beings have been so kind to me, I can repay their kindness in this lifetime. I must do so. So then, um, in the Lamrim Chenmo, Sankapa's vision, it is said that a kindness unrepaid weighs more than the heavy burden of the ocean together with Mount Meru. So these verses are from the Naga King's drum. The ocean, Mount Meru, and the earth are not a burden to me, whereas not repaying others' kindness is a great burden to me. The learned praise persons whose minds are not excited, who recognize and repay others' deeds, and who do not waste others' kindness. So to sum it up, Tsongkhapa gives an analogy that explains how we should think about repaying the kindness of others. Imagine that your dear mother has gone crazy or blind and is wandering along a dangerous road. Perhaps she's walking toward a cliff where one wrong step could result in a terrible plunge downward. Who should she be able to rely on in that situation? If you, her beloved child, are able to lead her to safety, it is your responsibility to do so. It is right in every way that you should help her in her time of need. All sentient beings are in a similar situation due to mental afflictions. Ignorance blinds us from seeing the situation properly. So the next step is heartwarming love. And I love the way Venerable Children talks about this one. She refers to this as seeing sentient beings in beauty, as lovable. And when we have this kind of feeling, this creates closeness and prevents alienation. The result of familiarizing ourselves with equanimity and the first three points will allow us to see all beings as dear. No one will appear suspicious or threatening. So in this way, heartwarming love will arise naturally. And as Kenshir Jampatekchok says, in this state of mind, when we have heartwarming love operating, anyone who shows up is a pleasure. We become like an affectionate mother seeing her only child. And then he goes on to say that heartwarming love is not the same as love. Heartwarming love sees all sentient beings with great warmth and fondness, and it also wants them to have happiness and its causes. Love 
wishes another to have happiness in its causes and is not specifically identified in the seven points. Heartwarming love precedes and is a cause of compassion. So now um, our teachers say that the progression to follow in meditating on love is we should start by meditating on those we already love. And after love arises strongly for those who are dear to us, then we move on to neutral people as our object, and we stay with them till the feeling of love rises and it's sincere. And then we move on to people we have more trouble with. And then when we've got that, then we can sort of expand it all to include all sentient beings. And if we do it this way, our love will be sincere. But if we just start off each time in our meditation with sort of like this generalized, you know, oh, I'm going to love all sentient beings, then Geshe Champa Chok says, we'll just have trouble feeling love when other difficult situations arise. The next step is great compassion, which is wanting all sentient beings to be free from suffering. And knowing what suffering is is critical for this step. So this is obviously why the Buddha gave this as the first teaching, the first noble truth. And to sum up this vast subject, we have the dukkha of suffering, which is misery, such as pain and mental distress. We have the dukkha of change, which is mistaking worldly pleasure for happiness. And then there is the third level of dukkha, which is called the all-pervasive compounded dukkha. And this is the one that um, I think we have to spend the most time with, because all we get the one about pain, we get the one about you know, things changing, but this is the one that we have to really, really pay attention to. This unsatisfactory condition of having a body and a mind under the influence of afflictions and karma. Uh, so Venerable Trojan says, so we look at our body and we mind, and our mind. And we can be sitting here seemingly okay. Right, Donnie? But are we free of suffering? No, because all it takes is a slight change in condition, and then the dukkha of pain comes. The lamp crashes. So just by having a body and mind under the influence of afflictions and karma means that at any moment, the gross kind of mental and physical suffering can happen. We're fine, and then whammo! We get smacked on the head, or we have a heart attack. We're in a good mood, and then whammo! Somebody says something to us. We get criticized, we get depressed. So there's nothing secure and stable because we have this mind and body that are not free. And this is, I think, so I've got to really go into high gear now. Um, I think this is where the whole seven-point practice, if we get out the magnifying glass, it all sort of comes right into this part of the practice. We need to develop an awareness of our own general and specific suffering by training the path of a person of medium capacity. So if we allow for an assessment of our situation, this will allow us to cultivate compassion for others. When we consider our own suffering, this creates the determination to be free. When we think about others' suffering, it creates compassion. And if we don't consider our own suffering first, we will never reach the point of this practice. So this is it right there. We have to see what our state is. And we, when we see it for ourselves, then we can see it for others. And then this practice really, I think, catches on fire. Because we can look at all of these other steps, and I know that I can look at equal, uh, just the first step, equanimity. 
And on any given day, I can say, I can't do it. You know, I failed again. That's it. I'm not going to try the other steps. Forget it. But I think if we really, really keep coming back to the first noble truth, then it will encourage us to go back. Okay, let's level the playing field. Let's go back through these steps. So with compassion, again, there's an order. Uh, we need to start with people that we already feel sympathy for. So we start with our friends or our parents or children. And we think about their problems and we feel so much compassion for them that we want to take responsibility to help them. And when that's very strong, we move on to neutral people and problems that they have. And then we move on to people that we label difficult. And in time, we can actually see that all of these people that we put in categories are suffering. And it's unbearable. In addition, we have to, and this is uh, Geshe Jampatechog again, he says that we have to really, really, off the cushion, look carefully at what people are encountering, just the people in our immediate vicinity and the suffering that they have. And so if we're going to end up in airports soon, some of us are, or we're waiting downtown at a stoplight, or we're seeing someone in the community struggling, we can just see that this is the situation we're all in. We're suffering. And to look carefully at what it is that's bringing our friends and everyone this experience. Geshe Sopa says that with, without a broad and deep understanding of suffering, we will not realize that the foundation of the Mahayana path is great compassion. And then some people, all of our minds warm up when we get reasons and uh, advantages of compassion, and they include the following. We'll begin to avoid negative attitudes and faulty actions by practicing compassion. We'll wipe out the negative karma that we created in the past. We want others to be free of suffering all the time. And when this positive thought is spontaneous, when this kind of thinking is spontaneous, there's no opportunity for anger or negative thoughts to arise. Malicious thoughts are eliminated, so we won't engage in negative actions. And when negative actions are eliminated, there's no cause for suffering results. Even though we are not looking for our own happiness, we will be happy. So by continuing, continually directing our mind to the suffering of others, the specific and the vast ways that beings suffer, our compassion becomes stronger and stronger. And then we have to honestly look at our own capabilities and see that at this point, even though we have this heartfelt wish, we just can't do anything about it. And that the only way to accomplish this is to develop our wisdom and compassion to their fullest extent by becoming fully awakened. Geshe Sopa says that spontaneous bodhicitta is not something that is accomplished by high Aryan bodhisattvas. It is something that occurs prior to entering the Mahayana path of accumulation, as we know. The next step in this seven-point practice is the Great Resolve, which is also called the Superior Thought. And the person who sums it up the best is Lama Zopa Rinpoche, with these three words, I, myself, alone will do this. So great resolve is not is the direct cause of bodhicitta, when we think, this is my job. But wanting the job is not enough, because we have to face the obvious question, how can I do this right now? I can't. I need to be free of obstacles, and I have to get this perfected wisdom and compassion. So again, the conclusion that I must become a Buddha happens. 
So, in sum, to generate bodhicitta in our mind, we need, as a cause, the mind wanting to benefit others and to work for their welfare. The first three of the seven points, recognizing sentient beings as our mothers, recalling their kindness, and wishing to repay it, are the basis for generating the aspiration to benefit others. Heartwarming love and compassion are the actual attitudes wishing to benefit them. Thinking I myself alone will free them is the great resolve. Heartwarming love, compassion and the great resolve are the causal aspirations of bodhicitta. The seventh point begins when we see that currently we aren't even able to free ourselves from suffering and obtain the ultimate happiness, let alone do this for countless other sentient beings. The only person who has this ability is a fully awakened Buddha, so this is what we need to do. We make the decision that for the sake of all sentient beings we will attain full awakening. And when that aspiration has become firm, we have generated precious bodhicitta in our mind. And so, to finish tonight, I'm going to end with Lama Nyeche. And he says this about bodhicitta. It's very practical. It is medicine. And he compares it to self-cherishing thought, which is like a nail or a sword that you put in your heart. Bodhicitta allows us to open for others, bringing tremendous pleasure and tremendous satisfaction. And he says, it is very interesting to work for others. It is so infinite, so life is rich and interesting. So... With that encouragement from all of our teachers, let's really review this practice and make the strong determination to become a fully enlightened being for all sentient beings. And may Dani's head heal quickly, and may her gift to us to show us that karma is ripening in every moment, may that just eliminate many, many hell realms that you might have gone to and now you don't have to. So thank you, Dani. And thank you to Venerable Children for being our wonderful teacher. And next week you're going to hear about the other way of generating bodhicitta from Venerable Tutin Chuni. So enjoy your Thanksgiving weekend. Let's dedicate. Due to this merry soon, attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate. All sentient beings from their suffering, may the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow, may the born have no decline but increase forevermore.